You are listening to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast. You channel, you channel your inspiration and in that people actually come to you and through you and talk to you and give you stories. They said, oh no, we, we researched everything, it's all true. I went, it was what? <laughs> everything that I had thought I was making up turned out to be truths and that told me absolutely that that wasn't me, that I was getting help. This isn't just another podcast with tips or tricks. This isn't just interviews with great artists. This is about finding the missing pieces that are going to help you make it as an artist. I'm your host, Holly Shaw, best-selling author, hypnotherapist, and creativity coach. And this is the Performers and Creators Lab weekly podcast, helping you to find your edge. Hey there, all you performers and creators, all you inspiration magnets. Today's show, we're talking about inspiration from the beyond, inspiration from the other side. I know I've talked about it before on this show several times, you know me, and I've mentioned that I think that inspiration is sometimes channeled from somewhere else. Uh, you know, when I wrote my book, when I wrote The Creative Formula, there were several times in the process of writing it that I'd get into a sort of creative flow and I would just write. And then when I stopped and read what I had written, I realized, wow, I didn't know that piece of information before I wrote it. And I realized there was probably some points where I had some assistance, that perhaps I was channeling some wisdom through my writing. So today's episode is about that. It's about channeling, getting inspiration from the beyond. And I thought, what better time to talk about channeling and creating with spirits or ghosts or spirit uh, other than this time of year? when the veil between the worlds is supposed to be very thin, which is why I decided to share with you this interview. I actually did it over a year ago before I even uh, had the idea to do a podcast because I was, at that time I was doing a video project, interviews with artists, and I interviewed this woman, Cynthia Whitcomb. Now she's the mother of one of my dear friends, Molly Mandelberg, who mentioned, hey, my mom is a very accomplished screenwriter in TV and film. And she happens to write with the assistance of ghosts. No joke. I was like, all right. So this woman, Cynthia Whitcomb, she writes stories in precise detail about lives of which she has no way of actually personally knowing about. It's fascinating. And so I got to talk with her and you're going to meet her in this episode. She also just happens to be a very fun storyteller in general to listen to with a lot of great advice for artists in general. So my guest today, Cynthia Whitcomb, has sold over 70 screenplays, 30 of which have been produced on national television. She's been nominated for the Emmy, the WGA, and Edgar Allan Poe Awards. She's written three screenwriting books and taught writing at UCLA Film School. She's written roles for such stars as Jason Robards, Ellen Burstein, Martin Sheen, uh, Angelica Houston, and more. And since 2007, she's been an active playwright in Oregon. 
Screenwriting is a notoriously hard world to get into. And so we begin with Cynthia's story of how she fell in love with screenwriting and how she broke in. I grew up in a family where we weren't allowed to go to the movies. Both my grandfathers were Nazarene preachers and movies were considered sinful. So I never been to the movie theater until I was in my teens. And my dad took us to see The Sound of Music. I was like 14, 15. That was the first movie I ever saw. So I was completely, I just fell in love with them. I was completely movie crazy from then on. And in high school, I was working, selling popcorn in movie theaters and seeing everything I could. And then I went to UCLA Film School and I just loved it. And I'd always wanted to write. I'd always loved writing. So then I started after I got out of college, just writing full time, really all the time. After a year out of college, I moved back in with my parents. It took me three years writing full time. I wrote 10 full length screenplays, three drafts each, a hundred pages each wow. before I sold anything. The people that write movies are just human beings like me. I'm smart. Whatever they know, I can learn. So I just kept doing it till I learned how to do it. But my 10th script I learned how to write. So my 10th one was good. And each one of those 10, I would send to 12 people and get rejected by everybody. So that's 120 consecutive rejections. Wow. I've never had a screen with more rejections on, on more scripts than I did before breaking in. My 10th one got rejected 12 times. And I started getting annoyed because I knew that it was good. It was called Grand Slam. It was set in 1919 Chicago. It was about the World Series being fixed and about a fictional... 20-year-old guy and a girl that worked at the paper who find out about the story and try and break that story. So it was full of slang from the period. It was very much in the style of the sting. And when everyone had rejected that, I got really annoyed. And I saw a film at the time called Hearts of the West, which wasn't a great script, but it took place in 1915, had a 20-year-old protagonist, and was produced by Tony Bill, who had produced the sting. And I'd read an article about him in the LA Times about how he'd put up his own studio in Venice, California. I think it was called Biplane Pictures on Market Street. So I thought, well, what the hell? I have nothing to lose. So I took a copy of my script in my little Volkswagen bug. I was 24 years old. Drove to Venice from where I was living with my parents in Long Beach, California. And when I got there, I didn't understand enough about the culture of Hollywood to realize that between 12.30 and 2.30, everyone is at lunch. So when I arrived, there was no one at the front desk. I walked through the offices. There was no one in any office. When I got to the very back, there was a young guy making sandwiches in the kitchen for himself who was holding down the fort. He said everyone was at lunch and they wouldn't be back till 2.30. And so I just said, well, is it okay if I leave my script here? He said, sure, leave it anywhere. So I just put it on a pile. I had no cover letter. I had no agent. I just put it on a pile of like 40 scripts. I put it on the top of the pile. And then uh, six days later, my mom wakes me up and she goes, where's your car? I said, it's parked in front of the house. She goes, not there. My car was stolen. I had no insurance. Now I'm living in the LA area. <laughs> as a person, I, I was writing full-time, so I would work only as a Kelly girl, which was a $5 an hour office assistant, one day at a time, like one day every couple of weeks, just to make enough money to walk around on. And um, they all wanted to keep me because I could type really fast, because I typed all the time. But I, I said, no, no, I'm just doing this you know, for the day, I'm a writer. I can't take this job. So um, that day when my car was stolen at 7.30 in the morning, four hours later, the phone rang. And uh, a voice said, this is Tony Bill. I loved your script. I'd love to meet with you. And you know what I'm thinking? God, if this is a deal, keep my car. I'll take this. 
So I was happy to make that virtual <laughs> trade-off. My Volkswagen for the for this deal. So I went in, I had to borrow my dad's car to drive up there and meet him. I had to borrow enough money to buy something I could wear to a meeting, you know, but I went up and met with him and he said, I loved your script. Now the article in New York and the LA times had said, if I read a script all the way till the end, I will make that movie. And he won best picture for this thing. So my first question was, did you read the whole thing? He said, yes, I loved it. If I were going to make this movie, I wouldn't change a thing. Of course, the operative word in that sentence is if, and I'm, I'm like feeling like, oh my God, it's going to be another one of those, you've got talent kids, keep up the good work, keep trying speeches. And I just didn't know if I could take this anymore. But he said, um, I, I can't make this movie because it's too expensive. Do you know how hard it is to get cars for 1919? I said, no, I don't know. He said um, he had most of the cars from the Sting. Somehow in that deal, he ended up with a whole garage full of bread trucks, buses, police cars from 1936. He said, could we set this in 1936? Because I got the cars. I said, you know, I'd love to do that. But no one fixed the World Series in 1936. So if you put it in 1936, you have to make it a fake team. You know, it has to be a fake city. The next thing you know, it's all fake. Well, that's just not very much fun. So my heart is like sinking and sinking. He goes, oh, that's true. So he says, well, I tell you what. I have this novel that a couple of producers brought me. Take it home and read it. If you like it, maybe we'll do that. So, of course, I take it home. I devour it. Um, I come back with a pitch on what I would do with it. He says, great. Well, who, who can I call to make your deal? If you don't have an agent, I can suggest someone. I said, that's okay. I said, I will call you tomorrow and tell you who my agent is. <laughs> so I go home and call the very best agent that's rejected me 12 times in a row. At least who knew who I was. And these guys usually call me back in a week or two. Some of them still haven't called me back. But um, so I called the best one. His name was Lee Rosenberg. He was a founding member of a writing agency called Adams Ray and Rosenberg. And I called and said to his assistant, Tell Lee, Tony Bill wants to hire me to adapt the novel for a feature film, and I need somebody to make my deal. He calls me right back. Oh, my gosh. Of course. I ended up an agent, a deal, and uh, getting the writers killed, and have been working ever since. And that was 1976 by the time the deal was made. And um, really, it was the life-changing moment, after which nothing has ever been the same again. Because they're like, there's an invisible wall and there, you're outside of it, and then suddenly you're inside of it. When I finished writing that script for Tony, MGM bought it over the weekend, and by Monday I was writing another film for 20th Century Fox. So, and I just kept working from then on. So it's been, it's been a really fun run. Fantastic. Yeah, what a fantastic breaking-in story. You know, just having a very, such a very clear moment of your life changing from one day to the next. I mean, yeah. I, your start, car gets stolen, and then your life just changes. Um, what a dramatic sort of breakthrough. So uh, going back to when you were raised, do you think it was being held away from film that made you, has made you so passionate about it? Or do you think that has anything to do with your um, passion? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. Because when I saw The Sound of Music as my first film, and, you know, I'd seen a little television, and suddenly the curtains are opening and opening and opening and opening and opening, and then you're flying over the Alps. I came out of that movie learning two things critical to my life. One, they're not sinful. Movies are not in and of themselves bad. And number two, you don't have to be a nun. This was important information because it's such a religious background that, you know, 
does God call anyone to the movie business? I don't think so. But I don't, I don't feel about talent that it's something you're born with or it's genetic or anything. I think it's something you teach yourself to do is to do something well. Uh-huh. Um, and there were many things I did, of course, looking at all those movies. And when I was young, my, my little sister, Laura, was eight years younger. And I used to take her to the movies every Monday afternoon because she didn't like her school very much. So every Monday afternoon, we'd go to a double feature, and we would spend more time talking about the movies than we spent watching movies. We would dissect them. What do we like? What didn't we like? What didn't work? And if we didn't like stuff, we didn't just say, well, that sucked. We literally remade the movie in our minds and reshot it and recast it and rewrote it. And we kept working on it until it was a good movie. And then we said, yeah, that would have been good. Then we moved on. But we trained ourselves to, to break story, uh-huh. to, to craft scenes, to write tone, to write dialogue. I mean, we were intent. Now she's a professional novelist who writes YA fiction and she sold five books. So she's done well too, but people can train themselves. You just have to really be paying attention. And I was intensely paying attention because they were so new to me. I couldn't even eat popcorn. I was afraid I'd miss a word of the dialogue. I just was focused on every film. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's funny. Cause I used to, when I was a kid, and or just you know even as an adult when I go see a play when I go see anything I'm doing the same thing and I like to tell people like I love I my favorite thing is like completely tearing it apart afterwards (laughs) but like I mean that in the kindest way you know not to not to um, criticize meanly or I wouldn't tell the people that are involved unless they want to know but it's just more for myself like I just think hmm how would I do it how what's not working and why and um so when I so when I work with artists, sometimes I do show doctor work where I help them sort of make it work. And I think yeah. like all those years of doing it in my brain. So I love your philosophy that talent is something that you don't have to wait to be born with. It is something that you can sort of teach yourself. Um, of course, I would add to that that you know there has to be the love for the thing that you're learning, right? So yeah. can you say a little bit more about that, about what you think about talent and hard work? And Well, I've taught a lot of writers in my time, and I would never, ever say to a writer, you should give this up. I would never say that. I think it's wrong because people self-select, and no one is good right out of the box. No one is good, born a good writer. It's a craft that you learn, and you develop, and you get better at it. I've seen writers that were really terrible get really good. They just learn the craft. They keep working it, working it, working it. I would hate anyone to see my first few scripts that I wrote as a completely naive, you know, 18, 19-year-old. No. Uh, you learn it by doing it and by studying films and by, by writing. My definition of the writer is anyone who feels bad about not writing. <laughs> anyone, because non-writers do not feel that way. Non-writers never crosses their mind, but there are writers who never write and you feel terrible about it. But that's the definition. It's not who writes, it's who feels bad if they don't. Artists United is a nonprofit organization inviting artists of every medium, every genre, every stripe to share and exchange knowledge, access high-powered collective tools, and embrace new ways of working together as a global force for good. Their mission is to empower individual artists to create excellent art and to unite all artists in order to create social change. Based in the United States, headquartered in Oakland, California, but their network and reach are worldwide. Artists who work alone create art artists who work together create change visit artistsunited.net 
to join their free membership and learn about their new social media platform. And we're back with screenwriter Cynthia Whitcomb asking her how she receives her inspiration from the beyond. I've heard that you are inspired um, in a unique way, or perhaps I should say maybe not a unique way, but the way that you interpret it is that um, you channel you channel your inspiration and that people actually come to you and through you and talk to you and give you stories. Is that an accurate interpretation? <laughs> I do hear dead people. It's true. <laughs> I'm not schizophrenic, but I do. I discovered this accidentally. When I was writing a, a television film called Eleanor First Lady of the World about Eleanor Roosevelt. And I came to this when they were about to shoot and they had a script that they had to start over three weeks before shooting. And the whole cast was pay or play. And it was Gene Stapleton and oh, just a lot of stars were in it. And so they really needed a script fast. And I was fast. And I had done a lot of television at that point. This is like 1981. Oh, and 1982. So I, they said, we need a script in five days. I said, okay, here's the thing. I can write this in five days if I move into a hotel, <clears throat> but I don't have time to do research. So you're going to have to have, they said, don't worry. We have guys. We have a whole team of people to do the research. So just go and write and we'll have people fact check later and we can fix it as we go along. I said, great. So, so, they, so my agent made the deal in an hour and they said, we'll pay what she's asking plus we'll pay the hotel. So of course, when someone says that to me, I move into a really good hotel. So I moved into the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, set up shop. I moved into a hotel with a card table, a folding chair and bags full of groceries. <laughs> I have loud food. So um, carrots, apples, chips. It has to be loud because it has to keep me awake for some long stretches. So I moved in and uh, all the way down, I played some recordings of Eleanor Roosevelt because we had Gene Stapleton playing Eleanor and I couldn't afford for Eleanor to sound like like um, Edith Munker. She couldn't sound like Jean's character. And so I had to get Eleanor's voice firmly in my mind. So I played all these recordings driving down from LA to San Diego. And then as I was writing, I would be pacing up and down the halls and I would keep hearing help, hearing things, hearing voices, hearing scenes, seeing scenes. So I just wrote down everything as fast as I could. Sometimes it's to your advantage not to have time to think because then whatever you're getting just comes through so quickly just write it down. So I wrote the script in five days. I turned it in and I'm waiting for their notes. After like a week goes by, I'm thinking, what is going on? Because I made up a lot of stuff in my mind that was made up. So finally I called them. I said, what's going on? Because I haven't heard from your researchers and I have to be able to correct this. And you're shooting in 10 days. They said, oh no, we, we researched everything. It's all true. I went, it was what? <laughs> everything that I had thought I was making up turned out to be true. And that told me absolutely that that wasn't me, that I was getting help. And I don't know that it was Eleanor, it might have been her assistant, I don't know, but I know that it did not come from me. Nothing in me knew those things about, you know, 1946. Um, it's funny sometimes. After this all happened, this and I understood this dream, then I wrote a, a film, which was Martin Sheen and Brendan Fraser, it was for television, it was called... Uh, Guilty until proven innocent about a kid who went to prison and he was alive. The kid was alive. He served six years in prison. Then his dad finally got him out. 
And I'm thinking as I'm typing the final draft, you know, this is so strange because everyone in the story is alive. And a voice right here said, I'm not alive. And a chill went up my entire body. And I went, oh, my God, the kid was murdered. New Bobby, new Bobby didn't kill him. He'd been helping me the whole time, and I didn't even know it. So that was, like, interesting. Wow, I'm getting yeah. chills. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very open to this, and it, and it, yeah. it has happened to me quite a lot. I've written oh. 100 scripts. That way. And I think these, these are people who something about their lives either didn't get remembered accurately or got forgotten or they still have something they want to contribute. All those kind of things. I think it's, they're still doing the work now. They just don't have bodies. They're not on earth, but some of us are helping when we can. Right. And, and you're just open enough to receive that information. Yeah. Because I don't think too much. I just, if I hear a scene and see a scene, I write it down. I don't think too much. One of my goals in life is to help actors suffer. I mean, help, help writers suffer less. And one way to suffer less is to not give too much weight to those voices that tell us it's not good enough or that we're not good enough. Those aren't true voices. That's not real information. That's just lies that a part of your brain is trying to stop you with. The left brain is trying to trip you up and stop you from creating. And um, those things aren't true. One of my students named Don Payne and he wrote Thor the movie Thor and um, he died young and he called me when he knew he was dying and he said I just am thanking some of the people in my life that made a difference and the thing that I want to thank you for is telling me that I didn't have to listen to that voice that that was not a true voice so I know he would want me to pass that on yeah that's so beautiful and has he come to tell you a story to write no no not yet but I'm open to that yeah and I'm curious, do you ever try to, it sounds like you kind of just get a whiff of it and then pay attention to it and, and capture it. Do you ever try to do it intentionally? Do you ever say, all right, I'm open, I'm listening, and then find, yeah. I do that process when I want, when I need input, just from a deeper place or a higher place. I call, um, Julia Cameron called it morning pages. I call it AMPs, A-M-P's. And for me, um, I combine the dumping the garbage process of writing down whatever's troubling you. And at the end of that, I say, are, are there any messages for me today? Do you have any messages for me today? And it, it's always wisdom. It's always something I hadn't thought of. And so it's a useful way to just get clarity and kindness when the stress of the world is getting you. But I do think that... Um, there's a right brain and a left brain and when you think something should be a scene and that's a thought that there should be this scene here don't write that scene I only write the scene if I see it and hear it if you see it and hear it then it's from your right brain and it may be coming from somewhere else it may be coming from you but it has to be that right brain's sensual experience of sight sound in other senses screenplays only have sight and sound they only have two senses period but in your mind if you focus on the temperature, the smells, the sounds, all that stuff. You'll, you'll get yourself into the right brain, and pretty soon you'll be seeing a scene, then write that down. And don't worry about where it comes from. Later you might have found out it, come, it came from somewhere else, but that's not the most important thing about it. The important thing is just to free up your inner writer to write and enjoy the process and not beat yourself up doing it. So you just came out with a new book, right? The Heart of the Film. The Heart of the Film. Here it is. Yeah, you're going to show it to us? Yeah, here it is. The Heart of the oh, Film. It has Darling, Jane Fonda, and Robert Redford on the cover. Oh, my God. My mom is going to love that. 
It's about how to write love stories in film. I've been teaching screenwriting, gosh, since 1984, so a long time. And um, one thing it feels like people have forgotten to do is how to write a love story, how to make two people fall in love, how to believe that, how to how do we fall in love as they fall in love? And there's some technology to it. And so I've just spelled out the four things you need and how to create those, how to achieve those. And I also got to put at the end my favorite 100 love story movies of all time. So that was fun to be able to make my own list. Oh, yay. Are there Nancy Myers in there? Yes, of course. (laughs) I love the holiday. That's just why. I love it too. Um, well, that's good because I like watching romantic comedies, and so hopefully they'll improve because sometimes I hope. it's a hard to buy into them. Yes. <laughs> I've gotten lamer lately, and we need to revisit how to make them good, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have um, – you do writing cruises, which just – I was salivating over that. That just sounds amazing to be able to go on a cruise with you learn write, learn writing, do a, a bunch of writing myself, and then relax at the end of the day with a bunch of writers. So can you tell us a little bit more about when and how to... Yeah, it's called Writing the Waves, and we go every year. I take a group of writers every year. Usually there's about 20, and we leave from Florida, and we end up in Europe. In the, in the odd number of years, we end up in England or Scandinavia. On the even number of years, we end up in the Mediterranean in Italy or thereabouts. And so um, it takes, it's it's around 14 days, the cruise part, and we go on different cruise lines. If you're interested in doing it, my website has that information on it, CynthiaWhitcomb.com. And people get an average of like 75 pages per person written in two weeks. It's intense. It's intensive. People get high on this creative group energy. So every day at sea, I teach three hours in the morning, nine to noon. And then we have lunch people write all afternoon. We have dinner together and we read out loud to each other every night from 8 to 10. So we have a critique group every night. And people are like writing for that, read it to the people and get feedback from it. So it's an intense. I get a new play written every year at sea. So I love that. You should wow. never choose a project based on what you think will be successful. Never. You have to choose one that thrills you, that you're inspired by. I mean, some people, they follow your passion, follow your heart. You have to do what thrills you not what you think is going to make you money the money will come if your heart is fully in it the money will come if your heart is fully in it Mm, so there you have it words to live by from the screenwriter cynthia whitcomb so what do you think after listening to this and hearing cynthia's story are you interested in trying to do a little channeling yourself there listener all this spooky halloween music aside You know, channeling is a fairly regular occurrence. Most of us, many of us creative types are doing it on some level often. All right. So it's it's nothing to be afraid of, per se. But one tip I always tell people who are desiring to open up that invitation to invite inspiration from the beyond is to remember that you attract those things that are on the same vibrational frequency as you are. So what does that mean? It means open yourself up when you're in a good mood. Invite spirits or ideas or energies to play with you when you're feeling happy because you are going to attract those energies that meet your mood.
I'd like to thank my producers, Q4TA, Robert Cholino, my creative think tank team, Melanie Myers, Hannah Romanowski, Erica Milligan, Tim Beal, and Dan Cantrell. And this song music that you heard in this very special episode was also by Dan Cantrell. So don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Performers and Creators Lab podcast so you're sure not to miss a single episode coming at you every week. I really hope you've enjoyed this special All Hallows Eve episode and enjoy connecting with that inspiration now while the veil is thin. My name is Holly Shaw.